Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, we are going to take a break from all the discussions we have regarding economics and, and uh, policy, and we're going to shift to theoretical physics and talk about quantum computing and quantum mechanics, which is a, a huge trend that everybody's talking about right now, especially given how uh, Google very recently announced that they have achieved the quote-unquote uh, quantum su uh, supremacy. So, so uh, we would love to dive into some of those more sciencey topics and get a little bit more technical with our interview and, and jump into some of those very important forward-looking questions. Uh, and joining me remotely from Yale is a very distinguished professor, uh, Stephen Gervin. He is uh, the Eugene Higgins Professor of Physics and a theoretical physicist who studies quantum mechanics and quantum computing. Uh, he is known for his very frontier work on quantum many-body systems, such as the uh, fractional quantum Hall effect, and played a founding role in developing circuit QED, which is now used by Google, IBM, and many other companies to build quantum computers. So uh, a, a truly frontier pioneer uh, in the field. So thank you so, so much for, for joining us all the way from, from Yale in such a crisis moment as COVID-19 goes around the country, Professor Gerwin. Well, thank you, Tiger. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm, uh, I'm about a mile and a half from Yale, uh, sitting in my home office, as I have been for some weeks now. But uh, it's a real pleasure to be here and talk about this uh, topic on which I'm quite excited. Yeah. Uh, that, that sounds great. I'm glad you're staying safe and, and all. And I also want to introduce my co-host of the show to everybody. His name is Harsh Babla. He is a junior in Princeton, same year as at me. Uh, he majors in electrical engineering. He is the chapter president at Princeton for the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers. A, a, a very big title, Harsh, you got over there. And, and he has done quantum computing research, uh, is, is, is a truly brilliant guy and has also educated me on this field to get me prepped for this interview. So thanks so much for joining me from Princeton, Harsh. You're too kind, Tiger. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited, uh, very honored to be here. Perfect. Uh, it's truly harsh and I's honor to talk to P P Professor Gervin. Uh, so, so why why don't we just start from the very basics? You, uh, your primary research uh, concerns uh, quantum mechanics, uh, physics, and, and quantum computing. Those are very tough terms to define. So, would you mind giving our listeners a very brief overview of what you study? Uh, sure, I'll give it a try. Um, so, uh, let me define classical mechanics that's the the study of motion of particles and planets and asteroids and the moon um, that was really founded by isaac newton uh, more than 300 years ago and it's an extremely good approximation uh, to describe what happens in the world with particles moving, what happens when a car crashes into a telephone pole, all of the sort of kinds of things that you can imagine. Quantum mechanics um, is a refinement of that theory, which became necessary to understand beginning about 120 years ago at the turn of the beginning of the 20th century. And initially, it was thought to apply only to very tiny objects, uh, individual atoms, uh, electrons, uh, particles of light called photons. 
lumps of energy called photons. But uh, it really is a theory um, that describes reality. Uh, its predictions are very strange and bizarre, but mostly not observable, except when you're dealing with uh, the smallest lumps of matter, like atoms, or the smallest lumps of energy, like photons. But still, it's the theory that describes everything, including the motion of the Earth around the sun. And it's easily the most precise and most successful theory in all of physical science. And, but its predictions are really quite bizarre. You, particles sometimes act like waves, waves sometimes act like particles. You can be uncertain where a particle is, or it can be in a superposition state of two different places at the same time. Uh, there's other strange features called entanglement that, that really bothered Albert Einstein. Ironically, he understood quantum mechanics, the implications of quantum mechanics better than the other founders of the field and realized they were so strange that, that he had to decide that there was something wrong, that the theory couldn't be right. But in fact, um, one of the things that we do today when we're trying to build a new type of computer based on the principles of quantum mechanics rather than classical mechanics, one of the basic engineering tests we do every morning to make sure the machine is working is to, to observe those effects that Einstein said had to be impossible. So there's a kind of second quantum revolution going on. The first quantum revolution was the invention of the quantum theory and the invention of um, the laser, the transistor, and the atomic clock in the, you know, in the 20th century. And we all know the incredible technological revolution of the 20th century that that brought us. The transistor eventually led to the integrated circuit. Uh, there are trillions and trillions of transistors produced per second in the world now. Um, the, uh, the atomic clock led to the global positioning system. You, you can carry in your pocket, a phone that will tell you, not only let you talk, but also tell you where you are on the surface of the earth to an accuracy of a few feet. And the inventors of the laser, uh, you know, were just sort of doing fundamental research. They had no idea that you would eventually transmit music or uh, as we are speaking now uh, in uh, to each other over a considerable distance, the information is being transmitted by laser light through optical fibers. And the people that did the fundamental research that, you know, the people that invented quantum mechanics did not foresee the these 20th century technological inventions and the people that invented the transistor and the laser did not foresee all of their uses. So nowadays we, we understand the theory of quantum mechanics has not 
changed, but it's so bizarre that it's still, after 100 years, we're still learning new things about it. And in the last 25 years or 30 years, we have learned that the, the quantum technologies that were invented in the 20th century do not actually harness the full power of quantum mechanics, that it's actually possible to build quantum machines, machines that whose parts act like atoms and, and can be in superpositions of different states, to do um, extremely powerful things with information, to communicate information, to encrypt it, and to compute on it. So a quantum computer, uh, like a classical computer, is based on bits, things that can be zero or one, binary numbers. But quantum bits, or qubits as they're called, have the ability to be in superpositions of zero and one at the same time. Now, that idea that things can be in superpositions, people at first said, oh, that's that seems like a bug <laughs> in the program of the universe. Why would I want to build a computer where I'm uncertain whether the bits are zero or one? But it's now come to be understood that in an extremely crude sense, which, you know, real experts, uh, you know, uh, uh, have concerns when we speak to the public this way, but it's a, it's a simplification. In the real crude sense, the bits are zero and one at the same time, or have the possibility of being zero and one at the same time. And very crudely speaking, that means that the computer can do many things at once, exponentially many things at once, compared to a classical or ordinary computer. So there are certain kinds of problems that if you could build a quantum computer, you could solve them uh, vastly faster than you can on an ordinary computer. And the thing to understand is it's not because the clock speed is faster, like the, the, the laptop computer that I am talking to you with now does its programming steps about uh, once every billionth of a second. That's pretty fast. Quantum computers are actually slower than that. But because of the way they process information, as you make the problem harder and harder by you know, giving it more and more data or, or more and more possibilities to sort through whatever problem you're solving, uh, the problem gets harder and harder for a classical computer, but um, not as hard for a quantum computer. The way the difficulty scales with problem size is different. So for large enough problems, even a quantum computer with a slow uh, clock speed can be can solve problems vastly faster than you ever could on a on a large um, classical computer. So that's the that's the dream. We're very very early stages of this revolution. You know, we've built rudimentary uh, uh, devices. The um, the first all-electronic quantum computer was uh, built here at Yale in 2009, I think. 
it had two quantum bits. I mean, it was fantastically <laughs> crude. And, um, and since then, uh, IBM and Google and Intel and Rigetti and other companies have scaled up this uh, so-called circuit QED architecture and done amazing engineering. And they're, they've built machines with of order 50 quantum bits. Now that doesn't sound like very many, uh, but if you think about the fact that a classical register, memory register that has 50 bits, it can be an it can hold one number. That number can be between zero and two to the 50. It can be a big range of numbers. But a quantum computer can be in a superposition of all those numbers at once. So you don't actually need uh, huge numbers of quantum bits before you have a powerful machine. So, Professor, you mentioned uh, briefly that we're uh, quite a ways off to realizing this goal. So uh, what would you say the biggest challenges facing quantum computers are today? Well, it's an enormous problem that... There's a kind of Achilles heel for quantum computers. This ability to be in a superposition state and to have this other concept, uh, which is pretty hard to explain, of entanglement, uh, that gives the computer its power. That same physics makes the computer extremely sensitive to perturbations, to noise, to interactions with the environment. That's one of the reasons we have to cool these circuits down near absolute zero to get rid of the thermal motion of the electrons. And um, it basically comes down to the following, that one of the weird features of quantum mechanics is that when you measure something, when you observe whether a particle is here or there, you collapse the so-called wave function. You change the state of the system by the mere act of observing. And so the environment surrounding the computer um, can be an observer in some sense. I mean, when you throw a baseball through the air, you don't see it fuzzy and spread out all over the sky you see exactly where it is. And in part, that's because uh, the light bouncing off it and the air molecules that have to get out of the way of the baseball as it flows through the air, they're all measuring where the baseball is. So there's not really any uncertainty about where it is. But in a, you do not want that happening to your quantum computer. You want it to be running completely in the dark, completely isolated, and um, that's extremely difficult. So when we first started uh, uh, about 25 years ago, uh, the first superconducting quantum bit could hold a memory or could be in these superposition states for an immeasurably short time, perhaps a nanosecond to be generous. And since that time, by clever designs and physics and theory and engineering, we've managed to increase that time by more than five orders of magnitude, by near, nearly a factor of a million. But still, the 
quantum bits lose their memory of what their quantum state is after about, uh, in the best cases, about 300 microseconds. So still one, th one three thousandth of a second. Now that doesn't sound like a very long time, but still it's, <laughs> it's vastly longer than when we started. And the speed with which we can do operations is actually quite fast. It it's, uh, takes um, maybe 100 nanoseconds to a, to a microsecond to do operations. So it's still a possible to do hundreds or thousands of operations before the computer forgets. But that's still not good enough to really, you know, I like to say there's no such thing as too much coherence. I mean, if somebody says, oh, I made the computer uh, superposition last for one second, somebody will say, yeah, but I have a problem I want to solve that's going to take 10 seconds. And if you make it 10 seconds, they'll say, oh, but I have a bigger problem. So so that that problem of of errors coming in is the key challenge right now. So the, the formal name for this is um, quantum error correction or fault tolerance. That's the solution to the problem. And uh, most computer scientists today outside of people that think about uh, cell phone networks have just don't pay attention to this problem because the hardware has become so reliable. So that's the grand challenge today to get from where we are now, uh, which is hugely better than where we were 20 years ago, but still hugely far from where we need to be, is to is to do fault tolerance. So, so it sounds like basically a building a, a reliable quantum computer with you know quote unquote uh, uh, unreliable parts. exactly exactly um, yeah. is 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 a real challenge here, and I think. That's uh, the breakthrough in the late 1990s uh, of the theory of quantum error correction that kind of give us this promise. And, and that's right. Uh, so it was proven mathematically that um, this would be possible, and it's a quite an achievement because, you know, the way how would I correct an error? Well, one way would be to make three copies of every bit, and then I would just measure them and. You know, it's like the Sesame Street, uh, which of these is different, right? If you see one of them is different than the others, you, the most likely thing is that one had an error, not that the other two had errors. And so you would, you would flip that one back uh, to correct the error. But in quantum mechanics, if you make that measurement, you destroy the superposition. So somehow, how, how can you possibly correct quantum errors when you're not allowed to look at the system that has the error? So it turns out uh, just totally brilliant theoretical ideas from Peter Shore and others um, uh, 30 years ago, uh, 25 years ago, um, that it's possible to record the information using kind of redundant or encode the information using kind of redundancy in a way that you can kind of make a subtle measurement that tells you what error happened and which part had the error, but it won't tell you what state the error occurred in, what, whether it was a, a sup, what superposition of zero and one. 
And then that's very good because then it that you don't collapse the state, but you can, the only collapse that occurs is it tells you definitely the error occurred or didn't occur and how to fix it. But it doesn't tell you what's, you know, the information that was hiding in there and got corrupted. So, so how far are we from that kind of breakthrough? Because uh, you said in previous interviews that we are still very much in an experimental stage of quantum computing. Uh, and you also kind of just mentioned right now uh, that that was the mathematically proven very theory that, that that's this grand vision that we have, but we cannot achieve in reality yet. So are we just lacking some specific engineering breakthrough or is it computer science or is it physics? Is it math? Uh, how do we get there? Well, the short answer is yes, it's all those things. <laughs> I mean, to date, no one using sort of a, uh, architecture based on on quantum bits, the two-level quantum systems. It could be zero or one or superpositions. No one has come close to getting the errors. The errors have to be rare because they're also going to occur in the circuit that corrects the error. So obviously, you know, things will blow up if you have uh, too many errors. And no one has been able to get the error threat the error rate down below this threshold where doing error correction begins to help instead of hurt it at first it hurts because you're adding redundancy so there are more places for errors to occur the errors become more frequent and then you run some protocol some program to try to correct those errors and if the circuit is good enough it starts it reaches the so-called break-even point where it's it begins to make things better instead of worse so we're getting close now but still if you look at the uh, amazing engineering job that google did in their 53 qubit device on which they claimed uh, to have achieved quantum supremacy uh, that uh, I can. Uh, so there are a number of technologies: superconducting qubits, trapped ions, um, uh, cold atoms. There are many technologies for making qubits, and none of them have succeeded in um, uh, doing error correction that actually made things better. With one exception, and that uh, my um, uh, colleagues. Uh, Rob Sholkoff and uh, Michelle Deveray here at Yale have um, done some experiments with a sort of a new twist on the circuit QED architecture. In the, in the original version, we had the information stored in these artificial atoms made with what are called Josen junctions. It's a superconducting circuit element. And then we had to communicate the information between the atoms, and we would do that by sending microwave photons, little lumps of microwave energy uh, from one artificial atom to the other. Uh, nowadays, we think a better way to go is the reverse. We're going to store the information in microwave photons trapped inside of uh, what's called a resonator or a cavity. So let me define quantum supremacy. It's roughly speaking, uh, finding any task, no matter how useless, that um, a quantum can, that's designed for the purpose of being 
uh, fairly readily doable by a quantum computer and hard to do on a classical computer. But uh, in the particular task that the Google experiment did is of no economic or practical value whatsoever. It's just a certain uh, kind of kind of throwing some random numbers, roughly speaking, from a complicated distribution. Uh, and yet, you know, it was an amazing engineering feat to get even to that level. But that that hardware, uh, the error rate within that hardware is not, even though it was just barely good enough to demonstrate this supremacy, um, uh, it's nowhere near yet good enough to do quantum error correction. But if you store the information in these microwave photons, there's basically just one error. And by using that, uh, there are two or three, I guess, three different um, ways or codes of storing information in microwave photons, all of which have come um, have come close to this uh, break-even point, and one of which has actually gotten slightly above the break-even point, where error correction actually succeeds. So this is the uh, first you know, milestone in the next stage of doing fault tolerance. But, you know, it was a lot of work. Uh, it only made the lifetime 30% longer. We want to make it 100 times longer or 1,000 times longer. And so, uh, but first you have to make it not shorter. <laughs> so we, we've made that step, but we have still a huge distance to go to make a truly fault tolerant quantum computer so so i was uh, but then what also made news was ibm disputing that claim so ibm said um that what google had proved wasn't as useful um, as they claimed it to be so what we would like to get your opinion on on the matter well uh yeah i don't think that's that, that's close to the right way of saying it uh so um it's not i mean it's in, as I said, in some sense, it's completely useless. Uh, it's just kind of an engineering test. There's no practical applications for it. Uh, although, mm, you know, there, there, there are some that could come from this in the future. I think more precisely what IBM claimed was, see, the problem is um, Google said we did a certain thing uh, and it, we, we also tried to do the same thing on a classical computer and uh, based on extrapolating from, so that they would do it on 30 qubits and 40 and 50 and 51 and 52 and 53. And the problem gets harder and harder to uh, simulate because uh, there are two to the 53 configurations of the, of the bits when you measure them. Um, and, but extrapolating from how long it took to do the classical simulation, they said it would take, uh, I forget, but, um, thousands of years, roughly. Um, and the, whereas the computer could do it in, um, I forget, a few hours, roughly. Uh, and then IBM argued, well, they have better ways of writing the classical algorithms and codes that they could they could simulate it much faster. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the quantum supremacy 
is uh, is a claim that that you could do something on a quantum computer that's you know would take ridiculously large lengths of time on a on a classical computer you know thousands of years or something or the age of the universe <laughs> uh, and you're always open to the criticism that somebody might be able to think of a, a more clever algorithm classically for for solving that problem and and the google paper you know says that's a possibility actually in the paper uh, but i don't so uh, ibm may be correct on this point that they could do something nearly as fast uh, but i don't think that that's um I, I don't think that takes away from the engineering achievement that they made with this uh, device. But at the same time, I want to emphasize, as I said before, that this was a specially designed useless task <laughs> designed for the purpose of making the quantum computer look good and the classical computer look bad. Uh, it's not something that has any practical value. and one measure that we're still very far from where we need to be is that that same machine cannot do error correction. Uh, so you uh, see this uh, Google's uh, breakthrough more uh, as a start to many more to come, but do you s soon see um, quantum computing scaling in a Moore's Law-like fashion in, in the sense that we will quickly... Yeah. Uh, and you know there are also other, some other people saying uh, Moore's law will soon run out at some point because the, there's a limit to how compact the CPU can be or how fast we can go. So I would love to hear your thoughts on: uh, Are we still not there yet, or are we almost near the end of this whole Moore's law thing? So you could argue that the Google machine and the IBM machine at similar scales, in some funny sense, have too many qubits that they it was easy enough to make a big set of qubits. But they don't work well enough that you can, you know, run very long. So you don't get any much advantage out of having a large number. I mean, you could fabricate a machine with a hundred thousand qubits today. It's not. It's they're fabricated by methods very similar to making computer chips. You know, once you can make a uh, hundred, you can just repeat that a hundred times and get ten thousand. But what we can't do is control all those qubits and get them to stay coherent and and uh, get them perform operations on them to uh, put them in superposition states and so forth very reliably. So uh, exactly how we should it isn't just a question of the number of qubits and making that get exponentially big. You don't even need if we could get. Uh, uh, we don't need huge numbers like in, in your, my cell phone has, um, I forget, 60 million transistors in the processor and, and billions in the memory. Uh, it's a good thing they're cheap <laughs> uh, per item. Uh, we don't need that many in a quantum computer. What we need are enough physical qubits to make a number of these error-corrected logical qubits. And if we had a machine with, with a thousand 
error-corrected, long-lived, fault-tolerant logical qubits. We'd have an incredibly powerful uh, machine. And the trick is to figure out how not to need billions of physical qubits to make a thousand logical qubits and correct the error. We wanted to be very, very efficient with the hardware. And so I don't think, um, I mean, we're not scaling, you know, like Moore's law has gone from one transistor to, to 100 billion, right? There's lots of orders of magnitude in the size of the number of transistors in the chip. We're going to go from 50 qubits to, you know, 1,000 or maybe someday 100,000. That's plenty to do really interesting things. But how, you know, that's that's going to be a big challenge even to get to there. And we're, we're still, um, in order to solve it, in order to scale up to large numbers of qubits, we have to invent fault tolerance, quantum fault tolerance. Um, so Professor, you mentioned uh, there's all these interesting things and stuff you could do. So could you please elaborate more on that? So um, if we do get to achieve this, like what kind of uh, cool computations and problems can we solve? So uh, that's very interesting because th there's a, it's it's not complete, ironically, <laughs> despite all this effort and money that's going into this, it's not completely understood what quantum computers are good for. We know some examples. We know, for example, from, uh, again, from this same Peter Shore who invented uh, error correction, uh, we know that a quantum computer could find could solve the math problem of finding the prime factors of large numbers uh, very rapidly compared to a classical computer. And you say, well, that doesn't sound very useful. But in fact, the fact that it's uh, very hard to, it's very easy to take two large numbers and multiply them to get a big number. I can do that on my watch. <laughs> But it's very, very hard to do the reverse problem to find the factors that you multiply together to get a big number. And that's uh, an example of a so-called one-way problem. It's easy in one. It's easy to check. It's very hard to solve. And that kind of problem is the basis of the public key encryption systems that uh, run the internet, you know, and protect your credit card numbers and so forth. Uh, so that's an obvious application. On the other hand, there are plenty, uh, I mean, the government and industry are now busy uh, deciding on what standards to use that don't in, for encryption that don't involve uh, the kinds of problems that quantum computers are good at solving. So that's, you know, not... Um, uh, by the time quantum computers are good enough to run Shor's algorithm, people will have uh, re-encoded all their secrets in other with other methods that are uh, immune to quantum attacks. That's called post-quantum classical encryption. Um, 
one of the things that quantum computers are good at is actually solving the equations of quantum mechanics itself. And they're kind of natural analog simulators, if you will. Why would that be useful? Well, if you have um, identified a target protein, the, if you could find a drug that would bind to this protein, it would, you know, cure a disease. That's a that's a typical scenario in uh, drug discovery. Uh, well, it just turns out it's you can kind of guess what would be a drug molecule that might bind, but you have to do all kinds of calculations on a classical computer to figure that out. It's very expensive and very time consuming and not necessarily reliable. Uh, it's believed that quantum computers uh, could be dramatically better at figuring out the the how well a, a drug candidate molecule binds to a, a target, for example. Uh, one of the one of the examples of economic importance that some people like to tout is um, well uh, the reaction that is used to make fertilizer, uh, this Haber-Bosch process, it takes, it's nitrogen fixing. It takes nitrogen out of the air, makes ammonia, and then, you know, regular chemistry turns ammonia into nitrogen fertilizer. Uh, it's very, very expensive. It occurs only at very high pressure, very high temperature, goes slowly, consumes, um, I forget, several percent, just making fertilizer consumes several percent of our total energy usage in, in, uh, in the U.S., for example. And, and yet, all those fertilizers are what allows the world to be fed and to support the billions of people that um, that now live here. So, uh, but but uh, before we had artificial fertilizers, people rotated their crops. They they every third year or something they planted legumes that have these nodules on them in the roots, and there are bacteria living in there. And the bacteria don't have any trouble <laughs> fixing nitrogen. They have some special um, uh, thing called Fumoco, which is a which is a the heart of a complex which um, contains uh, heavy metals and uh, does the fixation. We don't understand how it works. If we could, if we could, it has it's a big too big a molecule to really understand what all the electrons are doing by solving you know the quantum motion of all these electrons. If we could solve that on a quantum computer. Perhaps we could invent a um, uh, a better catalyst for nitrogen fixation that wouldn't take up so much energy. Now, when people point this out, it's a little subtle because actually the kind of quantum problem you need to solve is actually hard even on a quantum computer but it may be just not as hard as on a classical computer. So it's, it's a very interesting challenge goal for uh, if we could build a 
quantum computer big enough and accurate enough to start really solving for what molecules do in uh, in chemical reactions. So that's a that would be extremely exciting if we can get to that stage. There are other kinds of mm, optimization problems that we don't know for we know that in principle these are also hard on quantum computers but um, the economic value of solving optimization problems is enormous i mean every business uh airlines um you know how do you finance finance you know i mean they're just they're just huge optimization you know i mean the uh you know the definition of uh engineering some people use is um is you know optimization subject to constraints and what what other life skill do you need besides that <laughs> so uh you know the 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 programs that people use, people are able to use classical computers to get approximately optimal solutions pretty fast on things which are mathematically provably hard to get, you know, the optimum. And uh, pretty good is often worth a lot of money. So uh, what we don't know yet is we know that there are problems like this, which are hard even for a quantum computer. But what we don't know yet, we don't have a lot of experience with the kind of heuristics and, and approximate algorithms that people use, have discovered by hacking around with classical computers and saying, hey, let's try this. It's not very sophisticated, but look, it mostly works. Uh, we're just entering that era now as quantum computers become available for people to play with. You can, you know, you can, I teach a class at Yale for freshmen, first year undergrads, and, and I'm giving them homework assignments on the IBM quantum cloud computers, and which is a lot of fun. And so once <laughs> these become available and people start hacking around, somebody's going to figure out a better way to, you know, do these things. And in fact, the story I like to remind people is that actually in Princeton, uh, when von Neumann uh, and co-workers were, you know, had a machine at the Institute, one of the early computers, they didn't use the von Neumann architecture yet. <laughs> you know, they you, you program them by plugging uh, old-fashioned kind of switchboard wires um, connecting different circuits. And it was so painful and so horrible that they they were highly motivated to think of something better. And eventually they thought of the idea of storing the instructions the same way they stored the data so that you would have the privilege of writing programs that could overwrite their own instructions and crash. But <laughs> but um, that, that breakthrough that led to the von Neumann architecture, you know, made computers practical. And I think as we we're just entering the era where people, young people like you guys can start playing with these and say, hey, why don't we try something different, you know, and you'll discover um, clever hacks that will quantum hacks that'll really uh, let us do things unexpectedly more easily than we realized. So that's what I, I'm. I'm putting my hope on uh, you, young people. 
<laughs> that's a lot of expectations. Um, but um, what's I guess uh, what what justifies this sort of expectation is the fact that like so so um, we read an article by Nature magazine which uh, which mentioned that there's about um, a four fifty million dollars in private funding which is going into quantum computing now into startups and then apart from startups like big tech companies like Microsoft and uh, Google and like. Alibaba um, are all doing their own quantum computing research and stuff. So the, this question is sort of a two-part question, which is like the first is like how, um, like why do you think they're investing so much when like they still, like quantum computing, uh, the industry doesn't still have any like much to sell. And, and the second is like, why has this like investment risen so fast over the past couple of years? <laughs> well, I'm going to say something um, maybe a little uh, cynical, but the oh, we love those. <laughs> we, we, we. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, in in the in the world of uh, venture capital, there are in uh, you know an in investment. There are two driving forces: fear and greed. <laughs> okay, so uh, you you know. People have heard a certain amount about this, a certain amount of buzz about this quantum thing. They've heard amazing claims, some of which may turn out to be true. And uh, the, it seems like a, a possible revolution is underway and they want to get in on the ground floor. And the fear is, which is a legitimate fear, if this actually works, there are so few people right now in the workforce that know how to build these machines, how to program them. If this takes off, that shortage is going to go from bad to really, really bad. And if you don't already have expertise inside your shop on either how to build these things or how to program them, you're not going to be able to hire anybody and you're going to be left out in the cold and your competition will destroy you. So that's the, <laughs> that's the fear part. Now, you know, not all, uh, not all of this is completely rational. I mean, uh, I think quantum computing holds incredible promise and this really is revolutionary, but, uh, you know, we're a long way off from something that, a, a machine that can do something economically useful, um, especially like people are thinking about big data applications. There are, there is a thing, quantum machine learning, that's theoretically possible, but um, that's that is going to require the invention of something uh, quantum random access memory that's so difficult. Uh, and, you know, even beyond the fault tolerance thing we're trying to do now, it's a huge another scale of complexity. So, uh, and it is an area that's kind of, uh, you know, extremely abstract. I mean, the quantum mechanics is weird. The average person hasn't studied it. Uh, it it's hard to maybe for non-experts to uh, understand what claims are make sense and which ones don't. So um, some people are investing, you know, significant amounts of money just so they can learn, so they can they can get an inside track on learning the players and learning the field 
just in case it takes off. But um, that's a that's a you know you need a lot of money to be able to throw it around like that <laughs> on the chance that it might turn out to be important, which it may, but and may well. But I think it's more. Um, you know, I would say typically with new technologies, you um, overestimate what you can do in the short term in terms of engineering and underestimate the <laughs> the ultimate impact and scale of things that actually succeed. So um, I'm confident that if, particularly if the government, which is doing a lot of the funding, is patient and sees you know, the new ideas are going to come mostly from academia. Uh, if there's patient funding that gets us through one or two quantum winters, we're actually going to arrive at a very important place that actually is important for the nation in terms of economic competitiveness. But uh, I'm not a, I have no investments myself and uh, don't, I'm, I'm just giving you an outsider's guess of what's going on inside these people's heads as they uh, invest hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, Professor, I just want to quickly jump in here real quick. Uh, I, I think I might have an even more cynical, more cynical view than, than what you may think. <laughs> Is, don't, don't you think it's just... Uh, it's kind of overhyped or overinflated in the sense that a lot of people don't actually understand what this technology entails and then nor do they want to put in the decades of effort like you did you know in academia or in a research institute really quietly you know uh doing the research uh but rather it's way easier to I suppose, put out PowerPoint presentations and attract VC investments. Right. Uh, I mean, there there is a certain amount of that going on. There's quite a bit of hype. And um, I, I'm, um, you know, it's, it's very important. I mean, you have to really, really avoid that in academia. You have to, your entire reputation is built on, uh, you know, <laughs> Uh, not making Solitary. mistakes. Uh, if you do make a mistake, owning up to it right away publicly. I mean, that's just how the scientific method works. It's completely different when there's a gold rush going on in uh, in an industry. And I, uh, you know, I there's it's very safe to say that there's too much uh, hype and big companies having sort of dueling. Um, dueling press releases, so to speak, uh, uh, over, you know, advances in hardware, which are good and important, but they're just not, you know, it's just one step on a, on a huge journey that we have to take in order to get uh, to a, a really quantum um, ecosystem that actually supplies economically useful uh, so, so, so it sounds like it's not a money issue in, in the sense that, I mean, is, does it, is it conceivable to you that say the U.S. government or, you know, a big company steps in and say, I want to spend a trillion dollars 
make it almost uh, you know as as a project as big of a scale like the Manhattan Project. Yeah. We pull all those scientists, were were talents, whatever in, and we will inevitably get to some kind of breakthrough because we have that money. So I, you you mentioned you know the two quantum winters, and it seems that this uh, it seems to be a recurring idea. I would love to hear your thoughts on you know how money cannot solve the problem, or how money will in, in actually solve the problem. Yeah, so that's a great question. So. So my uh, my colleague Rob Sholkoff likes to point out, and people people sometimes speak to him, and they say, "Well, you know, academia has come up with these um, ideas, but uh, now it's just reduced to engineering. We just need to spend a lot of money, pick a pick a particular design, and just engineer the heck out of it until it works better and better and better until it's great." And, uh, you know, that might be true, but I think, um, uh, as I mentioned, I mean, the engineering that's gone into, at, uh, say, the Google supremacy machine is incredible. It's, a, it's an amazing uh, bit of engineering. And it achieved a particular task, not a useful task, but it, it did achieve a task, uh, but it can't do error correction. It's still, you know, there are other tasks that are really pretty basic that uh, we're still far from. So I think um, we're at a funny stage because typically in academia, you know, you, you run, your lab runs on grad students. They're around for six years and then they graduate, <laughs> go to industry or, or uh, whatever. And uh, you don't have a lot of engineering mm, infrastructure in in a typical physics laboratory. You don't have electrical engineer, real engineers to know how to build systems. Uh, and yet, um, the field has progressed so much that to sort of be at the forefront of academic research in quantum computing, you have to build small systems. And uh, so it's not the kind of usual um, circumstance for academic research. And uh, companies, large companies, you know, they they can't just turn on a dime and say, "Oh, we this week we decided that whole approach is wrong. We got to throw it out." You have to kind of freeze your your basic architecture and then engineer pieces of it, getting it better and better with hundreds of people and hundreds of millions of dollars and so forth. So um, we need both an ecosystem where there's new ideas that are completely different coming out of academia uh, and then moving to industry and you know bringing, bringing new ideas uh, there uh to try uh but people are experimenting i'm experimenting as i mentioned with this first year undergraduate course where i don't teach any of the usual quantum physics i just say here are some quantum bits you have this power and you can make those kinds of measurements and then uh, here's the rules of the game i'm not going to explain where they come from but you can start programming today uh, uh, knowing those rules and uh it's all it, it you know it's all very mysterious to the students, but they seem extremely excited about it and and happy to kind of 
learn how to probe those uh, mysteries. And I think that's good to get first year undergrads uh, excited about, or even high school students to get excited about frontier areas of science in a way that's not bogged down too heavily in mathematics and abstract things so that they can, you know, get excited about it. And if they get excited about it, then, uh, you know, they can teach themselves uh, all the complicated stuff. <laughs> One of the reasons for this interview is uh, to get Tiger excited about this as well. <laughs> yeah, well, well I'm, I'm a third year undergrad, maybe a little bit too old for it already. <laughs> a little bit too old to get inspired. <laughs> no, that's, that, that totally makes sense. It sounds absolutely fascinating. It's a, it's the right way to, to go. Yeah. So, so you mentioned uh, a little while back that like one of the one of the uh, key aspects of quantum computing is that it's able to break this public key encryption stuff, which like lays the basis of how we communicate today privately. And um, it seems like a lot of like countries and stuff are are computing to like invest in this, so, like U.S., Canada, all, like uh, China, and like all. all the world's biggest powers and stuff are and are, are investing so much money into this and a lot of people have gone and compared this with like the space race or you know like probably expediting a cyber warfare and stuff do you think these concerns are justified um... well it's a little hard to say it is true there's a lot of investment uh china's done some remarkable things with satellites and so forth um uh the you know when it comes to encryption and communication security the weak link is always the human beings it's not particularly how fancy your technology is right there's um a person who can be bribed or there's um you're using your your secret codes uh, every day. You're starting your first message with the weather report in your place, and uh, so then there's some correlations among the messages, and and they're not completely random. And you you know you, that's how codes were broken in World War II and so forth. So, um, so there's that aspect of it, but it from a pure technological point of view um you know it um there's kind of what can quantum do on both offense and defense so on on uh on uh um offense it it can break these if we can build a quantum computer it could break these public key encryptions as i said there's a classical way to get around that there's also a quantum way that get around that, that uh, you can transmit information in the form of quantum bits. And that's provably secure, even if your opponent has a perfect quantum computer, your adversary. So in the end, privacy enhancement actually wins out uh, if you have arbitrary quantum powers or resources available. Um, but it's, you know, these same decoherence effects that cause qubits to forget their state. They, you know, if you're sending the qubits are photons of light traveling through the atmosphere or through a optical fiber. Uh, if you lose one of those or they get distorted somehow that 
that doesn't matter much for classical communication, but it's deadly for um, quantum communication. But in principle, you can, the ultimate thing is that you can securely communicate and you can't break those codes without violating the laws of quantum mechanics. You have a kind of physical certificate that says this is, this is secure as long as the people involved are at each end are trustworthy. So it's very hard. For, I'm not an expert on, um, on uh, cryptology, and it's very hard for me to judge or say anything um, really expert about the risks to, um, to national security. Uh, there, the, 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 the arguments in favor of investing in quantum computing are national security and economic security. And uh, it's certainly true that there's a big effort underway now in the, on the national security front to define new encryption standards for classical encryption that's quantum proof. And uh, that seems like a worthwhile investment. Whether we can eventually use quantum communication to further improve the security, uh, how much that's worth uh, from a security point of view. I don't, I just don't have enough expertise. It's in some ways easier than building a quantum computer. There are, there are companies which will sell you quantum encryption systems for, that work over optical fiber today. Um, so, the fact that that technology is a little closer and maybe less expensive, it may be worth the extra uh, security that provides, but I'm, I'm just not expert enough to give you um, an informed opinion. This sounds a lot like um, like banknotes being counterfeited and stuff. And like once someone finds a way to counterfeit notes and stuff, there's another like security measure that's put in place to like prevent that. Exactly. And that, that in, keeps iterating, yeah. In fact, the the origins of the um the second quantum revolution began quite a long time ago uh with an idea called quantum money it was the first realization that the uncertainty principle that that you could be uncertain whether bits were zero or one could be turned to your advantage to make if you made a quantum serial number on money, uh, then it can't be counterfeited. There's a theorem called the no cloning theorem that you can't copy an unknown quantum state. And so you can't make a counterfeit uh, bill. You can take it to the government and say, is this a legitimate bill? And they, there's a way to verify that but there's no way for someone who doesn't know the quantum serial number to copy it. And those ideas actually directly led to um, uh, Charles Bennett and uh, Gilles Brassard in 1984 to invent this protocol for um, quantum key distribution, for, for secure quantum communication. And that was like the, f it's funny that the uh, counterfeiting money was like the first, um, it's totally impractical. I mean, you can't, the, the, because, you know, it would, the, the uh, 
quantum serial number will decohere in 300 microseconds. But, <laughs> but if you could make the quantum bits last a long time, then in principle, you could make non-copyable money. But that idea led to practical ideas for quantum uh, encryption and communication. And then from there, people began to think about computation and what you could do with this. So it's kind of ironic that you mentioned that uh, analogy. <laughs> uh, you know, Harsh and I want to be mindful of her time. So maybe we thought we could just ask you some quick philosophy, philosophical questions and, and some fun questions to kind of wrap up the interview. On. Sure. Um, do, do you ever think about philosophical questions, you know, as, as you venture through science? Because I asked this, I was reading about how, you know, Alan Turing was very famous for publishing philosophy journals and you know debating with Wittgenstein and you know it seems that there's so much overlap between the scientifically and also metaphysically unanswerable questions the, those grand questions that uh, you think about and uh, you know when you think about things like quantum computing do you also venture into philosophy of mind and and those metaphysical issues to inspire yourself or well uh only to a very limited extent i mean Quantum mechanics tells us something very, very important about the nature of reality, that certain questions are unanswerable, that, that things that you're going to measure don't have values until after you measure them. Uh, it's not really correct to say that a bit is zero and one at the same time. It's more precise to say, it doesn't have a value until I measure it and it collapses to either zero or one. The act of measurement brings the value into existence. So there, you know, for philosophers who think about what is reality, um, this, is, uh, this is a pretty deep uh, piece of experimental evidence that reality is not what we think it is <laughs> from our sort of macroscopic, uh, uh, platform uh, in the world, and uh, but the place that that physicists wax philosophical sometimes in connection with quantum is the fact that, as I said, quantum effects are most easily observed in the world of the very small single atoms and single electrons and single quanta like photons. But the theory applies all the way up. I mean, uh, you and I, the collection of molecules in, in me, are all obeying the laws of quantum mechanics. But I don't feel like I'm in a superposition. I feel like I'm in a definite state. How does that work? You know, And, um, and the, the place where people wax philosophical is is the following. We have a theory. It's a set of rules for how to calculate the results of, predict the results of experiments. It's the best predictor of any physical theory ever. You know, you can predict certain numbers to 15, 16 digits of accuracy. Uh, but when it comes to assigning meaning to the, where did those rules come from? Why are the rules that way? Or what do they mean? What does it mean when the wave function collapses? Is that just a crutch that we use because we don't understand? Um, 
And there are two schools of thought. One is the uh, what Feynman called the shut up and calculate school, that the physics doesn't talk about why, <laughs> only here's just tells you the rules and how to get the right answer. And other people feel that's a uh, uh, cop out and you know, we should think hard about as philosophers about what is the what is the meaning of the fact that the world seems to obey this peculiar set of rules. And um, it's interesting because, you know, quantum mechanics is hard even for professionals like me. I have arguments with my colleagues about what the result of an experiment is before we've sat down and done the careful calculations off the top of our head. We use our intuition and sometimes we get it wrong. Um, when you sit down and carefully do the calculations, nobody disagrees about how to do the calculation, what the prediction is. But we, we disagree vehemently on what words we should assign to the meaning of that experimental result. And uh, I don't know, uh, I don't know what to do about that. It's fun <laughs> to have arguments. Um, and it would be fun to get philosophers who take the time to actually learn how to do the calculations rather than just, you know, thinking about them and not fully understanding the theory. There's a, the, it would be great to, uh, there are really profound questions here. And um, I don't know the answers to any of them, and I would uh, love to do so. <laughs> See, I guess the, the, the way that philosophers often tackle some of those grand questions is by breaking them into smaller ones that somehow also capture the essence, you know, the sure. uh, they replace Q with Q prime, right? Like Alan Turing was has started his famous uh, paper, Computing Machinery and Intelligence, but by saying that, you know, the question, can machines think is very much meaningless, but the question of can one make a machine that fool other people, making people think that you cannot tell the difference between a machine and right. a human being. That's a meaningful one. So, uh, you know, as, as you think about those very big questions from quantum mechanics to quantum computing, uh, how, how does your brain function, Professor Gary? How do you break up those big questions into uh, thinking about those, those, those deep questions? Well, um... There are certain complicated phenomena that you can reduce to their very essence. You know, you can think about this concept of entanglement, which I still haven't defined and I'm not going to attempt to. But, uh, but if you have two quantum bits, you can put them in a superposition state in which they, the two qubits don't have independent existence. They, the state of one depends on the state of the other. And you can separate them Alice can take one uh, to the left, a light year, and Bob can take one to the right, a light year, and they can make measurements. And there are bizarre correlations in the results of those measurements that seem impossible from a point of view that the thing Alice is going to measure has a value before she measures it. You can actually do an experiment to prove that that statement is not true that uh, this uncertainty does not come from lack of knowledge of some hidden variable. It's, it, and so, uh, you know, physicists really like uh, experiments that, that can falsify 
some idea. And this, it, Einstein was horrified and would be horrified if he were alive today to see that this idea has been, that things have the so-called realism, that things have values before you measure them, is, not, is provably not true. And uh, so physicists are very comfortable when they get to test an idea with an experiment. They get uncomfortable when, you know, you try to start thinking about meaning and uh, and you can't think of a way to make a hypothesis and and falsify it with an experiment. Uh, that we leave to the philosophers. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what would what would you say? Like, are, are like you're currently working on? Like, you're most interested in right now and stuff. Um, well, uh, I'm working hard right now on this problem of fault tolerance, how to build a nearly perfect system out of imperfect parts and uh, trying to think of ways to talk, you know, work with the experimentalists to make these things uh, uh, logical qubits that have a lifetime that's much longer than the lifetime of the individual constituents of the physical qubits inside there. And uh, yeah, working on a number of different fronts in that, that area. Uh, Harsh and I must start a VC fund right now and invest in that area before it's too late. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Professor Kerman, I'm glad that you, you brought up the name, uh, uh, you know, Richard Feynman, who, who, you know, a couple couple minutes ago, who won the Nobel Prize in physics. And, you know, he once famously said, uh, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, you don't understand quantum mechanics. Right, right. So, so do, do you think you understand quantum mechanics? Uh, <laughs> um, well, it's a journey, you know. I learn, I understand it much better than I did um, uh, 50 years ago when I took my first undergraduate course in the topic. It was the first topic where I took a course and I didn't get it right away. You know, like mechanics wasn't that hard and so forth. But quantum mechanics just... I'm like, what, <laughs> what? <laughs> and and uh, you just keep keep working at it, and you slowly. Uh, I don't. I mean, Picasso said you never really understand anything; you just get used to it. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know whether I. I know how to do calculations well. I can. I have some intuition now. I can say what the answer is going to be without having to do uh, often without having to do big calculations. Uh, in fact. My thesis advisor, uh, John Hopfield, who was a professor at Princeton, where I got my degree, always said to me, Steve, never do a calculation till you know the answer. So, you know, just get the picture in your head, get the intuition right, and then you can do the calculation to find out whether the answer is 1.1 or 1.3. But the physics, you you don't figure out by doing a calculation. Uh, so... Uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's uh, an um, you know an amazingly rich theory which has been around now for a hundred years, and in the last twenty five years, we suddenly realized that we didn't fully understand it. We didn't change anything. It wasn't like oh, the theory needs modification to discover quantum computing. It was there all the time. People could have understood quantum computing in nineteen thirty if it just weren't so weird and and bizarre. So. I think it's just a, a such a rich theory that you can spend your whole life thinking about it and still have more things to learn. So that's what I love about working in it. 
Oh, I have to say, that's also my experience, this interview. You know, I, I never understood it, but I, I got used to it. It's so hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, I'm, then that's, that's success, right? <laughs> uh, Professor Kerr, I'm actually very curious. This is the, one of the last questions I'll ask you. I'll, I'll, I won't take more of your time. But seeing so many students these days, uh, you know, getting pulled into finance or big tech or, you know, doing things that, you know, entrepreneurship, because it's so sexy these days to, to be, be an a entrepreneur on LinkedIn. So it seems that, for, do you see fewer and fewer students willing to dedicate their lifetime like you into studying a, a subject matter and not getting, you know, uh, dreaming about getting on the front cover of Forbes magazine or something, you know? Well, and, and I actually follow up with that being like, uh, what, would you, what would you, how would you convince people to, to uh, go down this path and stuff? Well, uh, it's true that uh, people, uh, um, especially like in the quantum computing field right now, people um, are often going to startups or to big companies. Um, it pays extremely well. Uh, you don't have to, you know, they see their advisors uh, all the time working hard to write grants and raise money to support their groups and so forth. It's not, you know, people imagine we have this ivory tower life where we sit around and, with our feet up on the desk and think big thoughts. But a lot of the time we're busy, you know, we're running a little business and we have to get grants to fund our business and we have employees you know or they're not really employees but they're they're mentees and students and postdocs and uh it's wonderful i mean i i it keeps you young it's surrounded by young bright people it's lots of fun uh but it's not it's not for everybody and uh people people make their decisions um based on the ebb and flow of economic uh booms and so forth. And right now, a lot of people are deciding they want to go into industry in this field. Uh, and that's fine. Uh, you know, part of our job is to, um, is to develop a highly trained workforce. And, you know, we like to say that the fit training in physics is an ideal background for almost any uh, technical job. I mean, you learn how to make back of the envelope estimates and, and not work on things that are impossible by, you know, provably impossible and so forth. And um, for me, though, being in academia, uh, and especially being a theorist, I just, I've spent my whole life just learning new things. I can just, I don't, I'm not stuck in one area. I've changed fields uh, a couple of times in my career. And it's just so uh, much fun and, and fulfilling for me to uh, kind of mud wrestle with Mother Nature and try to <laughs> figure out what the secrets are and to try to convey to students uh, some of the things I've learned and some, my enthusiasm for, for learning. So uh, for me, it's been wonderful. Well, but I like how you did reveal, you know, your slight cynicism uh, at the beginning of the interview. Maybe you might be disappointed sometimes seeing um, <laughs> yeah. the society kind of get the priorities wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. So, so, sure. Uh, uh, so since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, I want to ask you just at the very, very end, 
what's the punchline here that you would give for our listeners, you know, for the future of quantum computing or, or for your research or anything that you feel compelled to convey to our audience? Well, I think um, there really is a second quantum revolution going on. There really are uh, quantum machines in principle that can that can really revolutionize uh, our both research and, and have economic impact. And you should, at a minimum, pay attention to it, keep an eye on it, and... Uh, at a maximum, you should, uh, you know, jump in the swimming pool with the rest of us and uh, have fun. <laughs> so, so how how can an average uh, non-engineer major like like me uh, get involved or learn more about it? What's the best way for our listeners to read about your work, and what what are some of the ways you recommend us to? Well, um, I'm gonna I'm planning to when I finish this. Uh, freshman course to um, to put the, the Zoom lectures are being recorded. I'm going to try to put them online. Perfect. That's um, the silver lining. But the, the, you know, you can go to the uh, several websites, for example, the IBM Q website, and there's there's instructions and you can just start uh, playing. It's not not uh, it's all a graphical interface. You don't have to do any programming and you can just start doing little experiments and uh, see if you get excited about it. And if you get excited about it, then you can start struggling through the, the math and the, and the physics background that you need to really understand these things. Oh, thank you so much for joining us all the way over from Yale today, Professor Gervin. It's such a wonderful conversation to get to talk to you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Tiger and Harsh. It's uh, been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. It's truly an honor. It's very much an honor. It's such an honor for us. Well, Harsh, and thanks so much for for helping me out with this interview and, and for doing this with me. Thanks so much for having me, Tiger. <laughs> yeah, Harsh, uh, you know, came, came up to me a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, with this enthusiastic uh, idea that you know we should we should totally interview you, and and it's so nice for us to branch out into science and and spread some of those important ideas to our uh, otherwise you know more focused on policy uh, listeners. Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate the work you're doing. Of course. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchlines. Please uh, visit us on policypunchline.com. Uh, learn more about uh, Professor Stephen Gervin's work on, on his website. And uh, as he rightly said, please just go try out quantum uh, computing, to learn more about those physics concepts, and uh, hopefully we can all uh, be part of the second quantum revolution. And, and thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.